This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The bad guys are using social engineering and tricking people into giving up their credentials or providing other kinds of personal information or sending checks in ways that they shouldn't be doing. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The COVID-19 pandemic made working from home the rule and not the exception for many Americans. Protecting sensitive data and private information has become more of a challenge for companies and individuals as both deal with the increased threat of cyber attacks that target remote work. I spoke with Miriam Wugmeister, partner at Morrison and & Forster and co-chair of its Global Privacy and Data Security Group, about some of the digital issues the COVID-19 pandemic has brought to light. Miriam, thank you so much for joining me here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, let's start with cyber attacks. How has the transition to remote work given rise to an increase in cyber attacks? Actually, it's been an amazing um, increase in attacks. And for lots of reasons, which, which we can talk about and which are, you know, seem self-evident, but the bad guys have really, really taken advantage of our new patterns of work. So one example is the enormous increase in the number of phishing attacks and phishing attacks, you know, that's using voice as opposed to email, you know, because when we're all working from home, you can't just walk around the corner and put stick your head in somebody's office and say, hey, did you want me to send that check, right? So as a result, so much more is being done by email. And the bad guys completely understand that. And they're using social engineering and tricking people into do things like giving up their credentials or providing other kinds of personal information or sending checks in ways that they shouldn't be doing. And the other way in which we've really seen a big increase is because so many more of us are working remotely. And many, many companies weren't set up and didn't have all the security in place to allow secure remote access. So it takes a lot of work to set up a VPN or to put in Citrix or to allow people to log in remotely using all the right kinds of secure methods. And the bad guys have exploited that weakness as well. You used a term I don't think I've heard, vishing. So phishing is with email and vishing with a V is with when you do it by voice. So somebody calls you up and pretends to be somebody else and then tricks you into, for example, they say that they're from, uh, you know, Microsoft uh, IT and they're helping you because you have a virus on your machine. And they do the same thing at work. They call up and they say, your CFO told me to call you to give you this email so that you can wire money to us, you know, whatever, like, right, it's, it's tricking people, but voice as opposed to email, because we're talking to people by phone or through our computers <laughs> where, you know, we used to be able to just walk down the hall. Well, this makes sense as to why, at, at least at CSIS, they send us test fish emails to see if we're alert to them. That's right. That's kind of the, you know, the one way a lot of companies are doing employee training, right? And trying to awareness raising. 
and talk more about how companies are are addressing this, or at least how they're trying to educate people. I mean, this was this is something, as I mentioned, that happens in our in our workplace. Uh, we get these crazy emails, and they're just checking to see if you're if you're paying attention. But what are companies doing beyond things like that? So, in addition to all the kind of awareness raising, there's obviously a big technology component. So many, many companies have added or are adding multi-factor authentication. So for many organizations, when you wanted to log into your system, you just needed your username and your password. And now because we're all remote and the landscape that your IT department has to protect has grown so much, you're getting asked to put in a second factor. So it could be a token on your phone. There are different ways that that works, but where people are trying to have two factors. So your username, your password, and then a second factor. That's a big way. Another way that companies are trying to combat this is also trying to make sure that people are not using bad passwords. So putting in place systems so you can't use the password summer, winter 2020, right? That that's just a a known bad password and they will preclude you from using it. Another thing that's happening, and I think this is the one that actually is sort of going to be interesting to see whether it lasts after we're all back at work, which is there's a lot more monitoring happening. We're seeing a big increase in, for example, organizations doing what I call behavioral monitoring. So for example, Miriam logs in every day between 7 and 8 a.m. from the East Coast. And now you look to see for anomalous patterns. You know, at 10 a.m., she logged in from China. Is that really Miriam who did that or has Miriam's account been compromised? So there's a lot more of that kind of surveillance. There's also a lot of other surveillance, particularly for people who work in call centers or in other types of organizations where they handle a tremendous amount of sensitive data. Because remember, everybody used to be in a call center, right, where you weren't allowed to bring in your phone. You were, A lot of call centers, you weren't even allowed to have paper and pencils in the call center. And now all those same folks are working from their homes. And so the amount of surveillance and monitoring has radically increased. And so that's another way companies are trying to address it. And we'll see whether or not that remains. And how confident are people who work in IT that these kinds of attacks can be successfully prevented or at least caught before they do a lot of damage. I know you mentioned earlier that with our transition to remote work, the number of cyber attacks has has really increased dramatically. That's really the trick, right? Is that you can't keep the bad guys out. If they want to get in, they're going to. And so the question that IT people are asking themselves is, assuming that the bad guys are going to get in, how do you keep it from being a crisis? Like that's really... That's the the goal now. We've changed the goalposts. It used to be we were going to try and make sure the bad guys couldn't get into the system, but that's just not realistic. You would never expect the little municipal police department in a little town to be able to defend against the army of another country. And that's really what we've been asking companies to do. And so really the expectations are starting to change. And and I think appropriately so, that you have to assume the bad guys are going to get in. And then the question is, how do you keep it from being a crisis? And so the kinds of questions that IT professionals and security professionals and, and lawyers are asking themselves is, how do you catch the bad guys before they do significant damage? 
How do you segment your network so that if they get into one part of your system, they don't get into the the company jewels or the crown jewels. You know, that's the work that's being done now. And that is actually, I think, where we need to see a regulatory shift as well, is that it's not going to be reasonable to say to companies or any kind of organization, you failed because the bad guys got in. You know, we just saw this with solar winds, right, where organizations that are supposed to be the most secure in the world were compromised. So it, it's not reasonable to say that you're just going to be able to keep the bad guys out. So what we're looking for, what we're trying to prevent how we're responding really has to shift and is is starting to shift. And just for those who may not be familiar with solar winds, can you get a give a, you know, quick synopsis of who was impacted and and what really happened? Sure, and and, and we can we can talk about this more too, but at a very high level, what happened is that a nation state actor was able to put a backdoor into the source code of a company that's used by 30,000 organizations around the world. So you know that when you're at home, for example, you get updates on your computer that say, hey, Adobe or Microsoft or whatever has an update and you just click on it to download it. That's exactly what companies do as well. Companies and organizations get a message from a trusted vendor that says, hey, there's an update, or they go to a particular site that's a legitimate site and they pull down that update. And the problem is that organizations have no idea whether or not, and no ability, just like we don't at home, organizations have no ability to check whether or not that source code is secure. And so what happened is that about 18,000 organizations in government, private sector, in the U.S., outside the U.S., 18,000 companies downloaded this source code from this company called SolarWinds that had a backdoor. That makes sense. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, but it's super scary. It is super scary. And we're a year into the COVID pandemic. And, it, you know, I know a lot of people are hopeful that that offices will be able to reopen sooner rather than later, given uh, given the fact that the vaccines are becoming more widely available. But there are still going to be a lot of people working remotely for quite some time. So other than not opening those random emails or text messages, even that you that you're not expecting, um, if you're if you're the employee working from home, what steps should you take to mitigate the threat that's beyond whatever your employer is doing with the systems that you're working on? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think sort of like my my kind of high level advice is if you see something, say something, right? Sort of the be suspicious. So if you get an email from the CFO of your company or from your CEO who's never contacted you before asking you to set up a payment to a new place and keep it confidential, be suspicious and ask whether or not that's really real. If you get an email from you think it's your IT department asking you for your username and, and login, check to see if that's really legitimate. I get random you know, emails and I send them to my IT department saying, is this real before I go give credentials or whatever? And my view is that's what IT is there for. They're there to help make sure I don't do something stupid. And so I feel very much empowered to ask them that because I'd rather ask and not make the silly mistake. The other thing that's I think we can each do is we can not use stupid passwords like password one, two, three. And the way I do it is I use passphrases. So I pick 
the first line of a song, or I pick a line of a poem, or I pick, I make something up. My daughter loves to play baseball on Sundays, whatever. And then I pick the first letter from each word. And that it becomes, because then it's not English. It's not, an, it's not an easily guessable password. And I use that as the way I make, I, I do my passwords so that I try and create passwords, which I can remember because it's, you know, a song I knew in the seventies. But if you look at it as a password, nobody in their right mind would know what it is. Is it okay if you have, uh, I know there are some browsers that will suggest random passwords. Uh, they call them strong passwords. Is that okay to do? I mean, it's always fine. I mean, look, if you can, if you have a method for remembering strong passwords, randomly generated passwords, that's great. What you, what you need to do to do that is to have a password keeper. I, I have a password keeper on my, on my phone because I can't remember them, right? I mean, I have hundreds of passwords just like everybody else. So I put into my password keeper on my phone. It's not stored in the cloud. I actually pay for it. That's a really, really important thing. I think the free password keepers, guess what? You know, it's free for a reason, right? So I pay money for a password keeper that's stored, all the information is stored on my phone. And then I put in the username and the password. And then, then I like to generate my, if I'm going to do that, I generate my own password. So if I'm going to do a randomly generated one, I'd rather just generate it myself. Or like the way I do it is I try and do a passphrase. Got it. Got it. That's, that's very good advice. And uh, I've heard someone say that if you're not paying for the service, um, you, you are the service. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. Sometimes free is, is too good to be true. Got it. That makes so much sense. Well, what about ransomware? I, we've heard about that and actually beyond people, actual organizations and some, in some cases, towns having their information in their computers locked and someone holding it for, for ransom. What kind yeah. of threat has that been during the pandemic? And has there been an increase? Yeah. So, so 2020 was. I know most of us think of that as the year of the pandemic, but in the cyber circles, we think of it as the year of ransomware because ransomware took off in 2020 in a number of different ways, not only because of the number of companies that were and, and organizations that were extorted, but also the amount of money that um, was being demanded and the level of professionalism. And I say that in a real way that we're seeing among the bad, the bad guys. So for example, you can go on the dark web and there are groups that just specialize in finding those vulnerabilities and getting access into a computer system. Then there are different groups that will buy that access so they can exploit it, so they can go and they can steal data or they can encrypt. And literally on the dark web, it's almost, it's like Amazon. You can find your star ratings. You can find, I mean, you can have drop down menus. It is unbelievable how that whole world works. And what we're seeing now really in the ransomware, the biggest change is we're seeing bad guys are coming in, they're fi they're exploiting like we were talking about through a phishing email or through a vulnerability in the software or the way in which individuals are connecting to the, their systems. They're coming in, the first thing they're doing after they establish some kind of ability to stay in your system is they steal data. Then they are deleting all your backups and then they are encrypting your systems so that they then have really three different ways to extort you. One is to say, hey, if you don't pay us, we're going to release the sensitive information that we stole from your system onto the dark web and embarrass you. 
The second is they say, we have all your, your backups, so you can't restore because we have all your data. It's gone. And the third is they say, we've encrypted your system so that you literally can't do your work. I, I had one, one organization that I worked with that was a manufacturing company, and the bad guys encrypted 80% of the computers in their manufacturing facilities across the world. They were just at a standstill. They literally couldn't do the work. And even if you unplugged everything, wiped everything, and started from scratch because the bad guys had deleted the backups, there was nothing to reinstall. They literally had none of their customer information, none of the instructions on how to build their products. It's all was gone. So the bad guys have really become much, much more aggressive. And one of the biggest targets um, during the last year have been organizations that are associated with the manufacturing and delivery of COVID vaccines. I mean, I know bad guys, they're, they're bad guys for a reason. I, I don't, you know, right. But it's sort of shocking to me still that that is who got targeted. And it, I understand if you're a criminal, why? Because if you're participating in COVID trials or in delivery of vaccines, you're going to pay because right. it's been such an important, it's such an important priority for the world. And so they know exactly who they can extort. Like I said, I still find it horrifying, <laughs> even though I do it every day. Yeah, I'm really scared now, Miriam. <laughs> <laughs> and we haven't even talked about privacy, which is another issue that with all of us working from home or a lot of people working from home, I should say, um, and we're not just working, we're doing schoolwork, we're shopping, we're banking, even seeing a doctor, you know, virtually. So given what you've just said about ransomware and how scary that is, how do you protect your private information from prying eyes? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question because right, everything we've talked about so far is really about what you can do as an organization or a company. But there's lots of stuff we can do as private people, too, to protect ourselves and our family and our friends. So the number one thing I and I'll tell you what I've done. Right, I'll, This is exactly what I've done for me and my family. I put a credit freeze on all of our accounts. You go to the various credit agencies and you put a credit freeze on. It's really simple. If you're not planning on buying a house or buying a car or you don't need credit, in the next six months, put a credit freeze on because then the bad guys cannot take out a loan, do all kinds, all the other things that that can be done with with your with your financial stuff. I, I know too many people. I get calls regularly from people where somebody's mother or you know spouse or whatever you know the bad guys have just emptied their bank accounts. So put a credit freeze on your accounts. The second is what we talked about already, which is get a password keeper. None of us can remember all the passwords we have to remember. And so we end up using bad passwords at home too. So we think, oh, you know, it's just some account, right? It's it's just my social media account. And so we use crummy passwords. I do the same thing with my passphrases and I put those all in my password keeper. Same thing. On your phone, go in and look at the privacy settings on your phone. So for example, I turn off all the location tracking services on all the apps, except for when I'm actually using the app. And most of the apps don't need my location. So I say no. You know, you get that pop-up that says this app would like your location. And, and I think to myself, why does this app need my location? I'm going to say no. So be mindful. Turn off. Don't have all that extra information being collected. And then this sounds so maybe self-evident, but don't put sensitive information in your garbage or your recycling. 
right? You're, you know, you have tax forms, you have bank records, you have prescriptions, you have other documents that have you know, social security numbers or your bank account numbers or, or your health information. And we are still seeing a, a lot of people doing dumpster diving. Literally bad guys go through the garbage or through the recycling. So buy a shredder. It is really worth every penny or burn it in your fire pit, right? But just don't put all those sensitive documents, you know, in, into the recycling or into the garbage because you think nobody's, nobody cares because they do. You mentioned your health information. You know, millions of people have gotten their COVID-19 vaccines and millions more are waiting to have their turn to get a, a vaccine. And what's been in the news recently is the talk about vaccine passports, specifically, you know, if you want to get on a plane or go to a sporting event, you know, this is something that I guess the private industry is thinking of as a way to get people back in the door. And the government has said that vaccine passports won't be mandated, but, you know, the private sector companies, you know, might require them. That's a lot of private, really deeply personal information that you potentially could be giving up in order to get your vaccine passport, if I understand how they're going to work. And correct me if I'm wrong about that. So two things there, right? One is I actually think a lot of people are going to demand, whether it's the airport or the airplane or the concert venue or the employers have vaccine passports, because people are going to say, I got vaccinated and I don't want to get on that plane if I don't know everybody else on that plane was vaccinated. So I think we're actually going to see a lot of pressure from the public to do this even if the government and the and the organizations don't want to. So I, I actually think the dynamic is shifting and it's not going to be top down. It's going to be bottom up. But I think there's also a huge missed opportunity. So half the states, I think, are using VAMS, you know, the VMS system for doing vaccinations. They already have all of our health information because we had to register online in order to get the vaccine and sign up for an appointment. So Ideally, if you're going to set up of some kind of vaccine passport, you would have all that data, which is already collected in one place where it's kept secure. And then that all that would show up on your phone is, you know, a green light that says, you know, VAMS has confirmed that Miriam has been vaccinated so that whoever is providing that app or whoever is collecting that information just knows it's a yes, no. They don't have to have any of my health information. They don't have to know my name, my age, the date that I got it, which vaccine I got, all that sort of stuff. So ideally, you don't want to be giving all that information every time you go to a concert or a restaurant or to work. So ideally, it would be a more centralized process, but we don't seem to be able to do that. And going back to what you said about the SolarWinds incident, that would be a gold mine. And if you had more than just, yes, you've been vaccinated or no, you haven't been vaccinated in this type of vaccine passport. I mean, speaking for myself, I just worry about that information. Yes, it's only yes, no, but could it lead somewhere else? Or am I just being super paranoid after everything we've talked about? I think actually, whether or not you've been vaccinated is a lot less privacy intrusive than, for example, all those questions we were getting asked earlier. Like, you know, have you had any of these 10 symptoms? Have you been in contact with somebody in the last 14 days who had any of these symptoms? You know, right? They were asking us, did you have diarrhea? Did you, you know, have you lost your sense of smell? And then have you traveled anywhere where COVID is at risk? So I actually think that asking you, have you been vaccinated as a yes, no, if that's all that gets asked is much less privacy invasive than all those other questions that, that we've been answering. 
I hate those questions. I, you know, I think they're, I think they're very privacy intrusive. I don't really, you know, what, what does somebody need to know what my symptoms were in the last 72 hours? You can know whether or not I had any symptoms. You can know, you know, whether, whether or not I, I've been treated. So I, I actually think the vaccine passport potentially, if it's done right, and in the way that we just talked about, could be less privacy invasive. And just going back to your point about solar winds. You know, SolarWinds is just one of the multiple supply chain compromises we've already seen in 2021. So remember I said 2020 was the year of ransomware. 2021 is the year of supply chain. So we've seen Excelion, we've seen Mimecast, we've seen Microsoft, you know, all have serious supply chain issues. And we're just going to see that increase. And I just don't know that the vaccine information is kind of the crown jewels that I'd be worried about. I think I think there's a lot more damage that can be done. For example, you know, organizations that collected all the that all that COVID information and all those answers to all those questionnaires, that's way more sensitive in my view, right? Who's had COVID or you know what your symptoms are. That feels much more invasive to me. Or all the other stuff about, for example, your financial information or other health information. There's information that's been collected for people who signed up for vaccines based on having a pre-existing condition. That's now all someplace. Because in order to sign up, you had to say what your pre-existing condition was. How is that being protected? Do I want my employer to know what my pre-existing condition was, such that I was able to get a vaccine, you know, in wave whatever 1B? The answer to that is no, I do not. So I would much rather have it be, yes, no, I got the vaccine or I didn't. Wow, Miriam. I don't know if anybody else who will be listening to this podcast is now as scared as I am, but you have succeeded in frightening me. But this is very important information to share with our audience, and I am grateful you joined us today on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.